and welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, dog welfare, conservation biology, and everything in between. I'm Kayla Fratt, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I am rejoined by our conservation correspondent, Dr. Charles Van Rees. Welcome to the podcast, Charles. Kayla Fratt. Dog science guru, it's such a pleasure to be here with you again, and, and thanks very much for having me on the podcast. Yeah, well, yeah, we've been talking a lot about how um, we are going to try to actually have you on the show a little bit more often, so I'm excited to be mm -hmm. diving back into it. Um, and for those of you who don't remember Charles, Charles is, yeah, he's our conservation correspondent. So Charles, do you want to let us know um, what you've been working on lately and just catch people up on who you are in case they've forgotten? Sure, I can do that. It's always good to remind myself as well. I think I, I'm a conservation scientist. That's usually the first thing I say when I'm supposed to be kind of branding myself. So I am uh, trained in ecology, biology, animal behavior, um, various aspects of kind of classical conservation, um, biology and science. And I work interdisciplinarily to protect ecosystems and species uh, from extinction. That's kind of my big bag. And my specialty in that has more to do with understanding how people's manipulation of fresh water as a resource mm -hmm. affects uh, endangered species and ecosystems that we rely on or find important and things like that. Uh, and then aside from that, I'm a, a interpretive naturalist. So I really value connecting people to the natural world and studying kind of the subtleties and idiosyncrasies of the natural world. I think, um, quite a bit is, we haven't, we haven't of course sat down for a podcast in a mm -hmm. while. So a lot of things have been happening since then. I, um, launched a nature communication blog called Gulo in nature, mm -hmm. uh, which I've been having a delightful time with. It's really been an excellent, um, way to kind of express and share knowledge. Uh, and I had a, a TEDx talk come out in, um, I think in June is when it went up on YouTube about kind mm -hmm. of how studying the natural world can help people think better and be more innovative and things like that. So I've been having a grand and very busy time, um, but what a, what a treat to be back here with you. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, thank you. And uh, I think people listening to that uh, brief Charles update and also knowing, um, you know, my travels to Kenya and all of those things would mm -hmm. maybe explain why we've had a hard time getting our schedules to align. But um, yeah, so today we are bringing Charles on to talk about invasive species. So particularly for the dog folks in our audience, I think this is going to be a really helpful discussion of what invasive species are, why they matter, and then how dogs can fit into this. And if you're much more on kind of the ecology side and you feel like you already kind of know invasive species, hang on anyway, because we are going to be talking quite a bit about how dogs can fit into the picture of mitigating, managing, and or eradicating invasive species. Um, so hang on, even if you feel like you know invasive species. <laughs> um, so Charles, why don't we start out with what is an invasive species? <laughs> Mm -hmm. and, th and this is very appropriate. I, I wrote a I wrote a blog post on this actually just several weeks ago, um, mm -hmm. and so it, it's pretty it's pretty fresh in my mind. And I think this is one of those topics that is very intuitive and easy for people who have studied ecology. And when you're just talking to random folks in the street, it's like, well, how does this make any sense, right? So. People generally will tell you, oh, if they hear the term invasive species, they know it's a bad thing. But but 
why is it bad and what does it mean in the first place? So at the most basic level, an invasive species is any it is a given species or population that has that is for some reason kind of jumping the boundaries of its sort of normal eco ecological equilibrium. Something's changed and it is uh, proliferating to such an extent that it is it is damaging to the surrounding ecosystem or to other native species. So it's it's suddenly disrupting an ecosystem in ways that humans find undesirable. Uh, a lot of the time, what we're talking about inherently are what are, what are known as exotic invasive species, mm -hmm. which are invasive species from outside of a system that have been brought in typically by some some direct or indirect form of human intervention mm -hmm. and by by not being uh sort of a co-evolved part of an established ecosystem or ecological equilibrium in some form they are highly disruptive in that sense otherwise there are, are native or indigenous invasive species which are ones that previously existed in this in some form in an ecosystem and usually again through some direct or indirect human influence, they have changed their sort of role or abundance in that environment to then be disruptive or harmful in some way. So that, that's going to sound very hand wavy and up in the air <laughs> at the beginning, but of course we're going to be getting into examples and things. Yeah. And I hope that that'll make it a lot more clear. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, you know, I don't think that sounded hand wavy, but yeah, it's there, there, it's a species that is disturbing the ecosystem and taking over. And often that means that it's non-native, but not always. Are there examples mm -hmm. that you can think of off the top of your head of a native species that has also been considered invasive in a given ecosystem or, and how does, how does that happen? So it, it will happen when, when people are doing something to change the environment that might, that might vastly favor that species. So, okay. and, and again, it, it, people could call, could call it invasive, but you know, a lot of these examples that are native ones have not been called invasive, for example, by like policymakers or by agencies who are on the legal side, because they're working with, you know, pre-established definitions that usually involve this thing, not being from here, wherever here it is. Mm -hmm. The examples that come to mind for me would be things like the brown headed cowbird or mm. maybe even something like raccoons in some context mm -hmm. where we have <laughs> kind of to use a sci-fi term, we have sort of terraformed, right? The perfect habitat for them. We have mm -hmm. created the circumstances where they are doing things on a much bigger level and they're doing things differently than they did in the, you know, much longer ecological history we're looking at with their involvement with native ecosystems. So the brown-headed cowbird is a really fascinating bird in, in the Icteridae or New World blackbird family that for thousands and thousands and thousands, whatever years, they were this, this kind of mobile species, uh, kind of nomadic that would follow large bison herds, which um, mind-blowingly enough used to range all over North America, right? We're talking well mm -hmm. into the East Coast. Yeah. They were, I mean, it, it's shocking to think about, but there were bison herds everywhere. And these birds would follow them. And in their nomadic lifestyle, they actually did not establish their own 
sort of nests, but but in following these herds around, which of course was their source of invertebrate food, they would actually nest parasitize the way that old world cuckoos do. Mm -hmm. They lay their eggs in in other species' nests, um, and and but that would mean that they you know they were highly disruptive wherever they showed up because all these bird species would get their nests messed up, but they would pass through, and then the bison herd would leave whatever a year later or two mm -hmm. years later, and they'd be gone. Uh, right. The way that we have altered the environment beyond just killing off all the bison um, has changed permanently the way that cowbirds live. And now they are a, a really huge – now they will just stay in an area permanently, right? And those impacts that they cause become long-term and chronic for migratory bird species that are already threatened by other things. So in a sense, we can consider them invasive in that they're, they're – you know, their ecological role has changed and now it's becoming damaging mm -hmm. to important species. Yeah. Well, and I could imagine, you know, I'm thinking of, I grew up in way Northern Wisconsin and um, the white tailed deer population there is super out of control um, because we so successfully eliminated their major predators for so long. And that, you know, and then we try to use hunting to manage it, but hunting doesn't put the same selective pressures on a herd no. as what yeah. wolves would do. And yeah. And so I can see, yeah, that's, that's interesting. And I think like most of the invasive species that we think of are, are small. So what are some of the things that would make a species like, obviously I can bring, I don't know, a rose bush over planted in my garden yep. or like most lilies or whatever and planted in my garden. No big deal. So like a, another one that I can remember <laughs> from my childhood, purple loosestrife. Mm. How come <laughs> if you plant purple loosestrife in your garden, <laughs> um, that can be such a problem versus again, like, mo you know, like I, you can plant all the daffodils you want and they're mm -hmm. very unlikely to harm an ecosystem. Yeah. So at, Right. A, a really, really good point you're bringing up there. Um, and also, I really liked your deer example. I, I hadn't thought of that. That's a, that's, a, that's a great point, I think. So when we're talking especially about um, – no, I guess this can apply across the board, but it certainly applies in my, in my mind much more directly to species that are being brought in from elsewhere. Not every species is going to be invasive. And I'm sorry mm -hmm. to be chock full of bird examples, but – uh, two <laughs> two sparrows in the same genus passer from the old world were brought over to mm -hmm. the u.s specifically and One just them, sorry just, sorry to interrupt mm -hmm. but just for anyone uh -huh. who's not familiar with old world versus new world um oh yeah remind us what that means <laughs> mm. yeah i mean if it's it's frustratingly you know a very colonial origin phrase but this is referring to uh, New World being the the Americas, North, South, Central America mm -hmm. continents, uh, Old World being Africa, Asia, Europe. Uh, okay. Yep. Thank so you. these 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 birds are from they're they're in a weaver I think a weaver family so they're Africa and Europe mainly but there's probably a bunch of species in Asia as well and they so two of those birds were brought over to the U.S. in this very ill advised uh, uh, weird shakespeare bird thing that people were doing in the 1800s because they had nothing better to do and one of those species became monstrously invasive and is now everywhere right that's the that's the uh, house sparrow european mm -hmm. house sparrow and then another one which was the european tree sparrow was also released in certain small numbers and it exists only in one tiny closed population 
somewhere in the middle of the Midwest. I can't even remember where. There's like one town <laughs> that just like has like a bunch of them and they just sit there and they don't like, you know, they're not taking over the world. Um, and that's weird, right? Because these are very closely related birds. In fact, if you don't know what you're looking for, they don't really look all that different. So what's yeah. the deal, right? Like some, some species will invade. Others will not, even if we bring them over and put them places they're not supposed to be. And this is, of course, an ongoing discourse and inquiry in ecology. So I'm not going to say that this is settled science at all. But generally speaking, we are looking at things that are uh, novel. So something in their ecology makes them different from other uh, mm -hmm. niches that are being exploited in the environment. So you can think of it as like an available room and like in a tropical rainforest, that room is super crowded. Like every little bit of niche space is being taken up by mm -hmm. some species that's really good at it. And so from a competitive perspective, right, um, something it's going to be hard for something to, else to fit in there, whereas other environments are more invasible, more invadable because mm -hmm. they might have more of that available niche space. This is why it's such a problem on islands, not to skip around too much. So um, but species that are doing something really different are one are one form of, of you know effective uh, invaders other things are things that can reproduce super super fast or spread mm -hmm. super super well this means that if there are those available spots they're going to find them and if, if something's made available to them they're going to reproduce and spread really really quickly in ways that are going to be ecologically disruptive um, the thing that helps a lot which is typical of most things that come from outside is they are also uh, immune or, or misaligned to the pathogens and predators and other pressures that would normally keep their populations in check in their home mm -hmm. area. And so these things will, will come into a new, new ecosystem and suddenly they are no longer being constrained and they could just spread like wildfire as it were. Uh, let's see. Am I, I, I'm probably missing at least one. Maybe I can let you toss it over to you. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Yeah, so, novelty. yeah, they're novel, fast reproducing. Um, oh, maybe disturbance loving. Generalist. Like, well, I was going to say, I yes. thought generalists yeah. tend to do really well. Like if if you're, which is which is actually the brown headed covered thing is really interesting because you would actually, I feel like I would have thought like, oh, okay, they rely on the bison. Then when the bison are mm. gone, they're going to be screwed. Um, but yeah, apparently not. So I, I mean, generalization, or at least like, if you're talking yep. about a, you know, a, what is the word? Like a non-plant, non-fungi, <laughs> like an animal, I guess, then, um, mm -hmm. behavioral flexibility. Um, yes. Oh yeah. 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 That, that, yeah. That's a big one. Um, for yeah. Example, like if there you're are thinking... lots of invasive parents <laughs> out in the world and that's part, part of it is because like, they're so darn smart. They can exploit those niches. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's true. That's another going on. Um, yeah, I think, I think that just about covers it. Um, yeah. so I think we've been kind of hinting at this, but what are, you know, what are some of the issues with invasive species and why, why do they, why do they matter? Like, I remember, mm -hmm. uh, having a discussion with a friend in high school, we were on a kind of like a forced school outing volunteer trip and we were pulling crowned vetch, I think. And, um, he had caught, he, he just kept being like, but I don't understand how this is different from survival of the fittest. This mm -hmm. species is here. It is succeeding. It is doing well. Why are we trying to remove it when, you know, 
this seems like yeah. survival of the fittest to me. <laughs> so, so mm-hmm. how, how is it different? Why, why is that not the case or is it the case? Yeah. So, so I kind of see a couple different questions there that are related and, and mm-hmm. important. So, yeah. So we ended on that generalist bit, which I think is really good. Like a lot of these are species that because they're generalists, generalists, if they're native or not, just do better in human messed with environments, wherever we are mm-hmm. and we screw things up and simplify these environments generalists do better. So that's a, that's a big thing to pay attention to here. Um, cause, cause we're a part of this and we're a part of the reason this is bad. So the first one in my mind would be uh, of those questions would be like, what are the ways that invasive species cause ecological harm? You know, what even constitutes ecological harm? So the big thing usually has to do with ecological interactions, meaning what, you know, what species are doing with and to one another, right? Looking at food chains and competitive interactions and things like that. And so when these new species come up, the reason they're disruptive is because typically they are extremely dominant in some way. They are vastly outcompeting or eating <laughs> or something like that. All these other um, native species. And as a result, they're causing a huge reduction in, in, usually the function of that ecosystem and the the biodiversity, the number of different species mm-hmm. and processes that are able to be going on in that ecosystem. So again, I think this is much easier to talk about examples and I'll give a couple and, and, and maybe sure. you'd like to do, because you, you've got real good examples and all mine tend to be birds, which is terrible. But uh, <laughs> here's, here's a not, here's a not, um, a, a, a not bird example. So tree of heaven is a really bad invasive plant mm-hmm. in North America. I think it's, I'm not sure if it's reached Canada yet, but it, for example, it, it's a generalist. It can grow in all these environments that we are making for it, which is problematic. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things it does is it actually puts out chemicals in its roots that weaken or kill nearby plants. Mm-hmm. And so it has a huge competitive advantage over other plants growing in those habitats. And so it can just really aggressively take over. And of course, as we talked about, um, this ability to reproduce quickly is also a big one. And this is a, a tree that can grow super fast. It has wind dispersed seeds. It can also vegetatively reproduce so it can like spread out its roots, little horizontal suckers that are rhizomes that come out from the root base and grow like it clones oh, wow. itself. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so yeah. all of those factors make kind of a perfect storm and it's really a, a disastrous invasive and it harms things by killing them with its root poisons by overshadowing plants right and stealing their sunlight Mm -hmm. it's a a competitive interaction um it has indirect effects of it reduces food for lots of other um organisms that relied on those other plants right they probably can't eat it because it has all sorts of different chemicals in its leaves that they're not adapted to Um, so those are kind of the main the main um kind of pipelines in my mind for how these things can cause harm although there are some other weird ones as well but yeah how about, well i how can about think of like yeah like uh, zebra mussels are i think mm. one of the classic ones where um they're one of their biggest issues or one of the biggest reasons we get really worried about them is how harmful they can be to infrastructure Mm-hmm. Um, which I think particularly when I was in like, <laughs> when I was like 18 and read Edward Abbey for the first time, I was like, great, <laughs> this is fine. <laughs> like I'm all about, um, you know, the, the planet fighting back. Um, mm-hmm. and now that I'm a little bit older and can realize like where, um, a, that's still just problematic because even if 
you know, maybe we don't like what hydroelectric dams do to other species, the zebra mussels taking it down are also not, not helping. (laughs) Um, and, uh, yeah, so like zebra mussels in particular, like the big thing that they do is they, they're this teeny tiny freshwater mussel that's from, um, a lot of the freshwater bodies actually around Ukraine. They've been introduced to the great lakes region, as well as they're in like 46 of the 50 States in the U S they're a huge, huge problem. Um, and what they do is they're about the size of your pinky fingernail when they're fully grown, but they they grow into these reefs um, that are super sharp, and they will clog, um, you know, drain pipes, water filtration, you know, all sorts of industry that involves water. The zebra mussels will they grow so thickly that they will clog those pipes, um, and then on you know, the recreation side, they form these really thick, very sharp reefs that can really ruin good swimming beaches. And then they're also filter feeders. So a lot of times lakes will get suddenly very clear as you've got a really nasty zebra mussel infestation, which at first seems great. And then all of the fish babies and, you know, the plankton and the other things that are a part of this environment have lost all of their food to just being filtered out completely by these zebra mussels. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's one that yeah I can think of. That's a really good one, yeah, and and I, I like yeah. that you brought in the the impacts to people as well, right? Because that's another mm-hmm. concern here is that these things aren't just impacting the ecosystems; they're uh, hurting us in in various ways. And um, the numbers are really staggering. I mean, we're talking, mm-hmm. you know, in individual countries, hundreds of billions of dollars per year in damages. Mm-hmm. Um, worldwide, yeah. you know, we're definitely approaching a trillion or something. I mean, it's it's crazy the amount of, the amount of damage and loss that comes from invasives. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point. And I think those sorts of arguments can fall differently for different people, um, on the, you know, on the Mm -hmm. like political Mm -hmm. or like interest spectrum. So I think it's important Mm -hmm. to bring that up because again, like for me, that was never the most compelling thing. Um, when I was, especially when I was like in high school and early college, um, but it is one of the things that can be a lot more compelling for other folks, um, who may not really care that much about, you know, the fact that having too many white tailed deer means that hemlocks are having a really hard time, um, mm, repopulating mm-hmm. in Northern, uh, Northern Wisconsin. Cause they're like, well, whatever. I like hunting deer and uh, who gives a shit about <laughs> hemlocks. Um, <laughs> and like fair, I guess I think they're delightful trees. I love sitting under hemlocks. There might be my favorite, but uh, you know, they're I get best. it. <laughs> yeah. They're oh my best. God. Yeah. Uh, um, Eastern yeah, hemlocks, and, by the way. Mm, yes. Um, oh, no, so, I, I meant for the listeners, just so they get the, get oh, the context. I wasn't, I wasn't correcting you. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I, I, I guess, um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, like, yeah, if you think the hemlocks too, like the reason that they're so nice is they just have these huge, huge shade oh. canopies. Um, and mm-hmm. there tends to be very little growing underneath them. And it's just this really soft, like duff underneath it. It's just like mm-hmm. very filtered, dappled light. It's delightful. Um, it is. And, that's another invasive species uh, connection, right? Oh, Where uh-huh. another reason why eastern hemlocks are going are kind of getting extirpated or wiped out throughout a lot of North America mm-hmm. right now is because of uh, the hemlock woolly adelgid, which is an aphid-like oh, little mm-hmm. beastie from Japan. I think it was from Japan. Um, again, accidentally introduced mm-hmm. and has been, especially down here in Georgia, in, in, in more in warmer climates in the eastern U.S the hemlocks are just getting hammered and it, it's that's one of that's probably more on a novelty thing this is a species that can spread quickly it's a species that can reproduce fast but it's feeding on these hemlocks 
in a way that I don't think they had any native species that were doing it in that abundance. And then it's mm -hmm. also, it doesn't have any native predators. So of course it's also escaping those population constraints. So it's reaching numbers that are way too high. It's attacking the plant perhaps in ways that it's not used to being attacked, uh, mm -hmm. in levels that it's not used to. And then we've got our hemlocks dying out and, and it's really sad yeah. for me. I can go on walks in the mountains here and find gigantic ones that are clearly, you know, they're on their way out. It's because of this, oh, this no. invasive. So, um, anyway, something yeah. so sad about a really big tree dying. <laughs> Yes, I agree um, completely. <laughs> there, so, and it's interesting kind of hearing you talk. I feel like for anyone who maybe isn't getting this, and I don't want to beat people over the head with it, but it sounds also honestly a lot like, uh, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic and what it has done to like the human population where we didn't have natural or medicinal defenses to it. We didn't have a vaccine. Mm -hmm. It was mm -hmm. a novel coronavirus. So it spread really quickly. Um, so if you can think of like the human population as an ecosystem and a virus mm -hmm. as an invasive species, that maybe is an analogy that will work for anyone who yeah. still isn't or, getting or just it, sort of gets like COVID. The, the human, I know we'd call it like the human um, pathogenome, right? Like all of the things that are mm -hmm. affecting us all the time, that would be an ecosystem where we have stuff we fight off all the time and things like that. Yeah. And then you introduce something that our immune systems have just never freaking seen before. And, and you get, yeah, you, you get a huge problem. Yeah, it, it, yeah exactly. Um, and that, yeah. that might be a good transition into the other question, which I think is, is a really, really good one for whenever I'm talking with the public is like, well, who cares? Like, yeah, isn't this just survival of the fittest? Won't this just lead to us to mm -hmm. having all of the best species? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah. Cause life's a tournament, right? And we should all be alpha males. Um, so, I mean, that's uh, what I was taught in elementary school. <laughs> I mean, you're doing, you're doing a great job. That, so, so it's, it's okay. Thank you. It, it I aspire to alpha male status. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so I, I will say two things to this. Um, and I definitely, I'm, I'm really interested in your thoughts because obviously you've done a lot of thinking on this topic too. So from my end, the biggest thing that people never, or that I always want to relay to people from a conservation perspective is like, it's not just about what's happening with ecology and conservation. It's about how fast is it happening? People always like, I always get this. Um, I always have this airplane conversation. I sit down on a plane and I get the dreaded talker. And this is, I've, I've talked about this in other podcasts in the past, but there's <laughs> yeah. always some like smarmy, clever person who's like, Oh, what do you do? And I'm like, Oh, I'm a conservation scientist, blah, blah, blah. And I can already see in their face, this is not going to be fun. And then they get this little smirk and they're like, yeah, well, species go extinct all the time. They've been going extinct for billions <laughs> of years. Like, why should we interfere? And I'm like, oh my gosh. So uh, there's two things, right? One is that the, the, those extinctions are happening thousands of times faster mm -hmm. than they do on a quote unquote natural basis than what we call the background rate of extinction. And that speed of erosion is not going to lead to the extinction of life on this planet. It's not going to like wipe out life. It's going to wipe out us though. Like we as humans depend on functional ecosystems. If they are gone, mm -hmm. we are gone. Nature will be fine. It will, you know, like, like enough cockroaches will survive and like whatever, just like <laughs> just ecosystems will restart. The cockroaches and the Norway rats and the <laughs> rock doves are all <laughs> just lived right, happily right, right. ever after together. And just crazy fungi that can eat, metal and whatever else but like 
we're not going to be around basically like we're the ones who depend on this stuff that's kind of the funny part um but anyway so we can't have extinctions extinctions happening this this quickly so that's a big part of the problem the other thing is that like you can't look at it as a purely competitive thing like competition is a mm -hmm. major part of nature but so is like this weird synergy and cyclical renewal mm -hmm. um and what some people uh, uh might call um uh, like reciprocity in nature like there are mm -hmm. all these species indirectly or not are depending on it's not necessarily always in e equilibrium form but they're depending on this kind of steady state vast network the self-stabilizing network of interactions between species and the and the environment that make life possible and when we introduce a new species, it's not that that one's better, right? That, that that's the reason it's invading. It's because it's different and it's from outside that system. And so all it's really doing is mm -hmm. disrupting that system and, and causing it to shift to something new. It's not that it's like stronger, you know, like that's why I, I, don't, I, I hate that, like mm -hmm. that term survival of the fittest. It's probably the most misused and abused phrase in science nowadays. Um, bit mm -hmm. of a hot take there, but like everyone's, you know, <laughs> you like you can ask. I think there was some scientist who like yeah. pulled a bunch of college students. Like, what do you think when you hear fittest, or what do you think when you hear Ralph? And everyone said strong or like aggressive. Yeah, it's like, and it's about that's not what makes like fit, fit the way your clothes fit, right? <laughs> oh, you know, I've never heard that, but I think that's a really that's that's a good point. And, and sometimes it's even it's just so you know the biological definition of fitness is so freaking indirect. But the point being, mm -hmm. like, fitness is not always about, like, mm -hmm. being better and, like, what does that even mean, right? It's it's more yeah. about, like, yeah, what what was favored by whatever circumstances over time. Like, what happened to be the thing that was left is a mm -hmm. lot of time. What What is the thing that is fittest, you know? Um, the, yeah, being the one left over, not being, like, the <laughs> toughest whatever. It's, it's, it's a, There's a difference there that's subtle. Um, okay, that's my blabber on it. What? <laughs> how did you answer your friend who brought that up? Who trolled you on that? Well, yeah, I think I really focused on like the harm and the harmony. I was like, I was like 17 at the time. So I probably spluttered a lot. Um, I also had a huge crush on this friend. So who knows? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was like, I don't know. Oh, I really brutal. want you to okay. like me. So I'm not going to argue yeah. with you. <laughs> yeah, that's probably why I still remember it so well. Because there was like other, yeah. <laughs> there were other Just factors. Just an alpha move play. on your part. <laughs> I don't know. Did not feel very alpha in that moment. No, no. <laughs> uh, hmm. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I really don't think I had a great answer for it. And now, you know, I don't think I can say anything that you haven't already said well um, in this, but, you know, I really focus on that, yeah, that balance um, and how disruptive things are. And I'm definitely someone who I think whenever I'm dealing with someone who does not understand something, my first instinct is to jump to analogy. Um, mm -hmm. And I try to pick an analogy that will work for my audience if I have the ability to grasp that audience. So actually, for example, last night, I was hanging out with someone who is, um, he's a union organizer. Mm -hmm. uh, he knows nothing about biology. He was a music major in in college um, and got a master's in music education and now does union nice. organizing. Yeah. Um, so just nothing related to this. And if, if I were, if he had asked me this question, I probably would have brought it out to the question of, 
like really disruptive politics, um, where if you have unstable and unhealthy political systems, they're much more at risk for really viral and intense and new ideas. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're better. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going Mm -hmm. to move a political body in the direction you want to go. So like, those are, that's always my first um, approach is trying to figure out an analogy that is going to work for the audience. And it may not be perfect, um, but you know, can start getting people to move in the right direction. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think this is, this is a particularly elusive one for effective metaphor, mm-hmm. but I, I like the one you used a lot. That's super helpful. Yeah. I mean, I think the downside of the metaphor I used as far as like political disruption is that it does the first step usually in political disruption is having a kind of weakened political system to begin with. And that's not necessarily the case for an invasive species. It does make it easier but it's not just that a highly disturbed ecosystem is going to end up with an invasive species. It can happen even in pretty healthy and well-balanced ecosystems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But certainly um, things like isolation, uh, which mm-hmm. makes sense in your metaphor, um, and disturbance mm-hmm. like humans coming in and messing with an ecosystem, both of those things in freshwater, in marine, in terrestrial systems, both of those things will make them vastly more vulnerable. So I think that's a fantastic uh, analogy there yeah well thank you um (laughs) so yeah i guess that uh that brings us to um you know the next thing we want to talk about which is so how do invasive species like how do they happen like Mm -hmm. you know we kind of hinted at it earlier with this purple loosestrife example which is a very beautiful purple Mm -hmm. plant that is highly Mm -hmm. invasive um they came around in gardens but like things like zebra mussels where did they come from this tree of heaven how did that happen um these invasive parrots in Southern California, where do they come from? Right. Right. So where did the mussels come from? Um, they were, they were in ballast water and big shipping ah. ships. Um, mm, yeah, that's the, the yeah. I hear the ballast water one a lot. Um, yeah. And I think that's, and that's the, I, I, yeah. I, and nowadays the way that they move around is also in like, you know, fishing vessels, you go, sh- mm-hmm. you go fishing, at your cabin in Wisconsin, you come home to Wyoming, you didn't properly clean, dry, drain, dry your boat. And mm-hmm. now we've got zebra mussels. And with zebra mussels, generally, it's not just the adults that move around, but it's actually the microscopic villagers, which hints at right. where detection dogs can come in because it's one thing to find a pinky size, a pinky fingernail sized thing in a boat. Not easy, but you can do it. But if you've got a microscopic villager, um, humans just don't have a prayer of finding mm-hmm. that at like a boat <laughs> yeah. check, such as t- right, check station. Right, right. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. So no, that that make that. Makes but I'm getting sense. ahead of myself. I I, <laughs> I could feel it though. I was like, oh, I want to talk about barley so bad. I'm not going to do it. Uh, okay. All right. I'm going to restrain my enthusiasm yeah. for that portion of this episode. So yes, uh, great, <laughs> great point. And that's a really good example. So yeah, the ballast water is an interesting one and I think it's very illustrative. So most of these invasive species that are not from a place are getting in, in the, you know, the reason they're not from a place is because throughout their evolutionary history of millions or whatever of years, there's been no way for them to get there. There's been some mm-hmm. barrier right, of, of habitat, something in the way. And humans, because we're really good at transporting stuff and we love doing it, are intentionally or accidentally facilitating the movement of that organism suddenly to a system from which it has been isolated for its entire evolutionary history mm-hmm. or, you know, for some huge portion of it. And then we get all these issues, right? Then we get this whole business with, okay, well, 
it it doesn't fit in with all the little moving pieces of that ecosystem and starts to cause issues ballast water is a great one i love that um so this is kind of weird to imagine but um hawaii Mm -hmm. which is a place very near and dear to my heart place where i've done a lot of my my work and and built a lot of my career in conservation beautiful beautiful archipelago of tropical islands um Mm -hmm. out in the absolute middle of nowhere (laughs) middle of nowhere in the pacific (laughs) they're so far from everything yeah Mm -hmm. um and so tons of stuff never got there and invasive species Mm -hmm. are a titanic problem there again this is this isolation bit we're talking about imagine this though tropical island paradise blah 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 no mosquitoes there were no mosquitoes in Hawaii. There were no native mosquitoes there. Nothing. Like you could just run okay, around. It is much more heaven than I imagined. Yeah, <laughs> That's seriously. Incredible. Um, and sure enough, ballast water, there is a species of mosquito that can deal with a certain amount of salt. And they their larvae survived in ballast water in some kind of big uh, shipping ship uh from japan yeah. that arrived on shippy the islands ship. it was shippy ship um shippy <laughs> mcship and it it showed up and of course these these mosquitoes got out and now not only are they horrifically um uh, overpopulated right these, these mosquitoes are just everywhere mm-hmm. because there's nothing that eats them uh on yeah. these islands but then nothing's prepared for them so they actually they carry diseases that most mm-hmm native um so that there's a there's an avian malaria which is a malaria that affects right it's it's a birds uh, yeah a protozoan that affects birds and and not people and these mosquitoes carry it and it has Mm -hmm. been wiping out tons and tons of hawaiian forest birds that Mm -hmm. evolved for many 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 years not dealing with that because there were no mosquitoes and they have no defense there's nothing they can do Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And and the only thing that's been keeping them safe is that they are at, living at a certain elevation that these mosquitoes can't get to because it's too cold sometimes. And now with climate change, that area is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And we are literally like since I started my PhD in 2012, like we're just sitting there. We're just watching these species go extinct because the oh climate God. shifting and the mosquitoes yeah. marching upward and upward. There's nowhere for them to go eventually. Um, super depressing, but a great, a great, you know, another example of the ballast mm-hmm. water problem. Another, another big one is horticulture, right? Mm-hmm. We love certain kinds of plants and I can't blame us because plants are lovely, but we like to move plants that we find pleasant to new places because we miss them because mm-hmm. we miss home or we want to eat the stuff that they make or they smell nice. I'm a big sucker for that personally. I love plants that smell nice. Um, and so we, we introduce new plants places. And just like you said, mm-hmm. purple loose strife, there's a reason that people brought it over. It's beautiful lovely it's a stunning (laughs) cool gorgeous plant but it also happened to meet those criteria for an invasive um down here in the south i don't actually know why kudzu was introduced i'm not sure if it if it was intentional or not but we have uh, i i i I don't know for sure down south but in latin america they plant kudzu as a um it's a hearty nutritious grazing option for goats and sheep so when i lived in latin america when i lived in panama in 2011 the first time i ever heard of kudzu was because we were planting it intentionally oh my goodness yeah which (laughs) yeah yeah, now now knowing what i know i'm like oh no um yeah that's well i I literally like planted kudzu somewhere (laughs) yeah i suspect it might be less harmful in a tropical setting 
I think there's probably more Hopefully. stuff that could compete. Although it's with like where I was not. in Panama was highly agricultural as well, though. So it already mm-hmm, is like a highly disturbed mm-hmm. ecosystem where you can, and that's actually, um, sorry to interrupt, but I just noticed this yesterday and I'm fascinated by it. Um, and, and I haven't done any Googling, but, um, here, in Nebraska, the cattle tend to hang out under the wind turbines because that's where the only shade is in their pastures. <laughs> yeah. And I was driving and I was looking at um, looking out the window at the wind turbines. And I noticed that under all of the wind turbines in about the radius of 100 meters by 100, you know, 100 meters out in any direction from these wind turbines, it's like nothing but verbena. Um, oh, which and is I don't, uh, invasive? I, I don't I don't know. I don't know. I haven't done any Googling, but I noticed this and I was like, I wonder if either this is something that because the cattle are trampling the area, so other grasses can't grow and the verbena is the only thing that can survive. Maybe it's not very nefarious or maybe it's something that is transported by the cattle in their droppings Mm -hmm. and is coming there. But I think there's got to be something related to the fact that the cattle tend to hang out near the wind turbines and this verbena also being near the wind turbines. And while you think of your next couple examples of how they move around, I'm going to Google <laughs> whether or not Verbena <laughs> yeah. is invasive to Nebraska because I, I w- <laughs> just thought of this yesterday. <laughs> it could be a nutrient enrichment thing too, right? Like maybe those they're just in the seed bank there, but there's more cow poo and pee that you know introduces urea and nitrogen that gets them going. Either way, uh, this is this is yet another example of why you should be a professor and everyone should join your lab. Anyway, uh <laughs> <laughs> so we're back to talk about mechanisms here. So anyway, those are a couple of mechanisms, right? So we have people bringing in plants because we want them. So so like in Georgia, um, uh, at least one really, really invasive vine here is wisteria. And it's from China originally. There's a whole bunch of different versions, but there's one from China, there's one from Japan. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful vine. It, it grows very prettily. It has these big inflorescences of purple flowers and they smell utterly delightful it is one of my favorite things in the Mm -hmm. world i love how they smell they're so pretty you can grow them on like gables and stuff but they're down here they are insanely invasive they take over vast amounts of Mm. land they outcompete native species they're a problem but we brought them in because they're nice but they can be nice and a huge problem right those those two things can Mm -hmm. exist together Mm -hmm. um okay so uh a couple terms just because i'm a a real vocab guy that we might want to focus on here for talking so you can understand what people are talking about when they're discussing invasives so we were talking about right now about mechanisms right for how they get there we Mm -hmm. call those mechanisms of arrival um or -hmm. introduction and that's that's the stage when something first gets to a new place and the things that do the arriving the things that are introduced are what are called propagules and one of okay. the things that can help a species um, become a problem is what's called propagule pressure. So how much or how often are those propagules being introduced to a place, right? If you just, I don't know, toss a handful of seeds in the ground once and it happens to be near an ant colony and they collect all those seeds and eat them, well, you're not going to get an invasion. It just didn't have a chance. <laughs> yeah. If you are just dropping seed bombs all over the country – the chances that one of those is going to take and catch off is much greater. So that's the propagule pressure thing. And then mm-hmm. I keep alluding to this concept. Um, and now I want to put a word to it so I can use the word later um, is establishment. So when I was okay. talking about something taking right establishment is when the invasive species 
grows enough in population or an area that now it's it's its own self-sustaining population new property right. yields are no longer necessary and it's doing its own thing and then probably going from there right yeah because um, if you just released five male whatever to an environment they're not yeah. going to be able to become self-sustaining but if you introduce mm-hmm. five pregnant females that could you're be gonna a have a problem mm-hmm. yeah Mm-hmm. Um, and I also um, just sorry to interrupt the, the no, no. I did just um, so there this hoary vervain which is verbena is um, Jeez, what's your language it's an it's it's native but it is considered a weed and it is most common and problematic in overgrazed and disturbed rangeland prairies disturbed soil types um, and okay. it does sound like it doesn't say why or how it's harmful necessarily but it does it's you know they're like yeah, this is something you probably want to take care of on your on your property if it's a big problem. So they give a couple options for it. So it it's it, it, this actually may be an example of one of those like harmful natives. I don't know if it's full on invasive, but it is harmful. So anyway, okay. So we've mm. got propagules and um, what was what was the first one? I've already forgotten. <laughs> got, okay, we've got arrival. We've got arrival or introduction. We've got propagules. Mm-hmm. We've got establishment, and then the last one would be like, okay, you've got your established population. They are mm-hmm. growing, they are reproducing, they are eating everything or outshading everything or doing whatever they're doing. Uh, and then you get what's called secondary spread, which is mm-hmm. from an established population. By dint of their massive reproduction, they are spreading across the landscape and taking over more mm-hmm. um, stuff. <laughs> and that's, that's that's secondary spread. And I hear that from invasive species people a lot when I first started mm-hmm. hearing it. I was like, what the hell does that mean? So that's our that's our kind of key vocab here for the process excellent and i'll um i'll make sure all of that ends up in our show notes so if anyone needs to double check that they can um, just go back and have a quick reference and we'll also link to like your blog post and all of those things as well um we're going to take a quick ad break and when we come back we're going to talk a little bit more about how do we deal with invasive species and particularly where conservation detection dogs come in Patreon Book Club is in full swing. We just finished up Detector Dogs and Scent Movement by Tom Osterkamp and are about to start Canine Ergonomics, The Science of Working Dogs. To join our book club for three bucks a month, head on over to patreon.com slash canineconservationists. We also offer monthly group coaching sessions for aspiring handlers, puppy raisers, and pros, as well as a monthly rotation of free webinars, workshops, and roundtables with experts. Um, Again, three bucks a month, up to 25 bucks a month, kind of depending on what level of support you want to um, give and receive, check that out at patreon.com slash canine conservationists. I hope to see you join us there soon. And we are back. So Charles, um, what, what are our options when dealing with invasive species? Like, okay, so we've got them. We brought them here in most cases. This is kind of our fault. What do we do now? (laughs) Okay, the, and this is what's ev- what everyone is asking because this is a you know a, a really intensely recalcitrant issue. Um, invasive species Ooh, are vocab word. really hard. To- <laughs> I just think it's a good word. Um, invasive species are really hard to deal with, mm-hmm. but I think it's really good that we left off with those vocab words because they will help us here. Those are kind of telling us about different stages of which the invasive process happens right okay Mm -hmm. and how we deal with this problem or perhaps more appropriately 
if we can deal with this problem has mm-hmm. a lot to do with where we are in this process and which vocab words we are currently dealing with. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the highest level goal typically is what we're calling eradication. We don't mm-hmm. want this species here causing problems, costing money, wiping out our ecosystems, whatever it is. We just don't, we don't want it. And if we can totally get rid of it um, and remove all of them from the ecosystem, that's great. That's eradication. That is typically only feasible really early on in the process. Mm-hmm. So pre-establishment, we're talking about yeah, okay. shortly after introduction, before uh, we're trying we're trying to um, find those propagules and eliminate them before they can start reproducing mm-hmm. and establishing. And certainly before they're at the point where there's secondary spread going on. If you get to that point of establishment, oftentimes it is going to be too late. It yeah. is now impossible to get rid of that species. Uh, you need just massive amounts of effort usually to, if they're an animal, you're usually trying to capture them. Uh, if they're a plant or, some, or something stationary, you're trying to like physically right, remove them from the ground. Mm-hmm when they start to take over huge amounts of area that becomes impossible you don't there's no way right. to have the money or the person power to do something like that so at, I, that I, point, if, mm-hmm. at risk of being pedantic about metaphors i feel like this is the example of like at some point you've got a couch where you've had too many dogs on it for too long and you are never oh, no. getting all of the dog hair out of it <laughs> um, <laughs> like it's just never gonna happen like it it doesn't matter if you remove the dog from the couch permanently um mm-hmm. it you just have too much in there <laughs> um and i think most of our listeners probably get the dog hair analogy yeah. no that's a good one and and i guess to to to, to continue along that thought uh mm-hmm. path okay. you're going to change your expectations of that couch from now on you might even change yes. the way you use that couch that might become mm-hmm. the dog couch that might become the screened mm-hmm. in porch whatever outdoor couch that might be i don't mm-hmm. know what else um it's probably not the one that you're going to have, you know, uh, some beloved guest sleep on when they come to visit you because you don't feel good about the condition it's in. Mm-hmm. Similarly, we have to change our expectations and our management of an ecosystem or of an invasive species when it shifts from being, you know, a recent introduction that we might have had a chance at to an mm-hmm. established one. Mm-hmm. So typically there, we're, what we're doing is, okay, how can we keep this from getting any worse? Um, mm-hmm. So there's different ways of doing that. One is... I think a lot of time they call this mitigation. We're trying to deal with and manage the impacts of that invasive, preventing them from getting too bad. So it's here. We're stuck with it. This is our life now to use a, mm-hmm. a you know, a, um, <laughs> this is my life now. Yeah. yeah. And we have to deal with it. We are just trying to find ways to make its impacts lower. So that might be removing it from certain places at certain times. Um, like getting rid of it during the breeding season for certain birds. And maybe it takes over again during the winter, but we don't care. Something like that. Mm-hmm. It also means usually containment. So, okay, we had to retreat. We had to do a tactical retreat. We lost right in this one area that mm-hmm. this invasive species took over. Okay. Well, let's prevent secondary spread. Let's prevent it from going any further. This is definitely a big mm-hmm. part of the approach. Um, 
and this might be our, our chance to finally dive in and, and, <laughs> and fan out over barley, but like with zebra mussels, that's kind of where we're at right mm-hmm. there. Um, was it Lake Powell, right? Like we lost, yeah. right? We like lost. they are there Absolutely. and they're never going away. It, it, without yeah. some radical, you know, technology and radical expense, they're never going away. They are yeah. so entrenched there. But there are lots of bodies of water that they could invade where they are not. Yes. Yeah. And if we can keep them from spreading there, that is fantastic. That's a that's that's a win, right? You have to mm-hmm. change, you have to change your expectations. Um, so if you can clean up that dog couch to at least be clean enough to be like presentable and then the dog can sleep on it when they need to that's a win <laughs> so yes. you, yeah, exactly. you change your expectations so 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 that's i think that's the biggest thing what we think of is that we we have to kind of move through this workflow and change what we're doing based on how bad the situation is and that's yeah. not to say that people don't eradicate species that are established but it's rare and it's really mm-hmm. really hard to do and usually it involves some you know incredible innovation or tons of people mm-hmm. donating money or tons of people donating their time through, you know, community or citizen science efforts and things like that. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think they're kind of going, <laughs> sticking with this dog catch analogy, like you have tools that you can use to reduce or mitigate. Yeah. That spread where like, you know, mm. so Niffler, for example, sheds much more than barley even though he does not need brushing as far as his coat getting tangled, if I take him out and I do some really good undercoat raking, um, which is just a specific brush that really gets his that fluffy Jeez. undercoat out. Sounds violent. Uh, yeah, it does. Uh, it's just it's it's like a rake um, that I use to rake my dog. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, uh, and I I pull out gobs of hair when mm-hmm. I'm outside and can throw them away. And then it's not as bad mm. in like my rental car um, mm-hmm. or on the couch in the place that I'm renting. Um, mm-hmm. And no, it doesn't mean that there's no dog hair in here, but it's at kind of a manageable level. And I think that's, that's a lot of the eco, uh, the invasives that I think, unfortunately we're familiar with. We're kind of at that stage where it's like, okay, I'm going to try to protect this new piece of furniture from the dog yes. hair. And I'm going to do what I can to make it so that it doesn't look like I'm a crazy dog lady the second <laughs> you walk into my house. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and yeah, like that's that's where we're at with zebra mussels, where it's like, okay, we're never going to get zebra mussels out of Lake Powell unless, you know, of course, as soon as you said that, I was like, I mean, we could drain the lake and like let it sit mm-hmm. totally dry for a while and then we could refill it and like that might work. Mm-hmm. Or we could like mm-hmm. maybe engineer some sort of virus that only attacks zebra mussels. And exactly, like, you know, like exactly. when we start going that, that route, that. it's like, yeah. Yeah, it's like, okay, that's very expensive and has a lot of potential risks and drawbacks as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Like Mm -hmm. I could shave both of my dogs, but um, that also would not necessarily fix my couch problem and would have Mm -hmm. some other knock-on effects. Yeah, Um, absolutely. What other consequences are you dealing with? Like what Barley and I were doing when we were stationed in Yellowstone was we were trying to keep zebra mussels out of Lake Yellowstone, which is the headwaters of the Yellowstone River ecosystem. Because mm-hmm. if they were to get into Lake Yellowstone, they would go downstream and end up in everything else downstream of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that was what we were working on. And then, you know, when we were working on the Dyer's Woad project, that was the sort of thing where, um, and Dyer's Woad is an invasive plant, similar to Tree of Heaven, it's allelopathic. So it's got, um, it releases stuff from its roots that kills nearby plants. It, a single plant can produce 10,000 seeds. So you can imagine if you miss one, Mm-hmm. You're back to square one next season. Like you're screwed. 
Um, and there, Dyer's Woad is pretty heavily established in um, certain parts of Idaho. So they're not working on dealing with it there. They do some spraying campaigns just to keep it down, but they're not really trying to eradicate it there. And we were working on Mount Sentinel in Missoula um, where there it was, it was like on the cusp of becoming established. And they've had years where they've gotten it down to the point where there are no, they don't find any plants all year. And then the next year there'll be like 10 and they kind of just keep playing whack-a-mole with this plant, trying to get to the point where we could have multiple years in a row with no, no new plants. Um, whack-a-mole is another were, fantastic analogy for that mitigation. Yes. Totally, that's great. <laughs> yeah. And that's, you know, and that's where I think we can also talk about like these, these phases of invasives um, and how, how dogs can be used differently at different phases. So maybe why don't you talk about the different phases or like stages of invasive species? Um, and then we can kind of, I can jump in and jam a little bit on how and where dogs may be useful or maybe not at that given stage. Sure. Yeah. I, I love that idea. I, I might take one <laughs> very quick step back, um, to a yes, point please. that, I mean, th this, this fits what you're asking me to, I promise I'm not just running off the rails, but, um, in terms of the management, which also relates to the stages of these invasive species, another major thing, right? Um, that is the preferred way to do this. And, and now my metaphor brain is going towards um, self-defense, which is another thing that I'm really passionate about. I, you know, mm -hmm. I teach martial arts and self-defense. And the highest level of martial art, you know, according to a lot of my mentors, is never having to fight somebody. Is not being in that situation. And that's what I always try to teach yeah. people in self-defense is like, yeah, it's great if you know all these moves, whatever, or if you have a can of pepper spray, you know, you can get out of a situation. But even better is that you never ran into that person. Yeah. Or that you were never in a position where they could target you, whatever. And and I don't want this to ever, you know, especially in a self-defense context, to ever come across as like victim blaming for anyone. But I just mean right. it's even better if you're not there. That's just right. That's even safer. Right. So so that I'm, you know, whenever people want to, like, I always go to parties and people go, oh, yeah, you're a martial artist, like, teach me some cool moves. And I'm like, honestly, <laughs> the thing that's really going to help you is, can you read people? Can you talk to people? Mm -hmm. Can you see what they're thinking or doing or is something off about someone or is someone starting to get too mm -hmm. angry? Can you, can you deescalate? Can you be, can you talk in a way that's not going to drive somebody off the wall if they look like they're really on edge? Like, preventative mm -hmm. measures, right? You're walking mm -hmm. down the street and someone looks a little sketchy. Well, you know what? I'm not going to keep walking this way. Maybe I'll find another way. Just little mm -hmm. things like that. This is the yeah, preferred it's like way. When you're mm -hmm. traveling, like don't walk around with your phone in front of your face, clearly lost all the time and don't have mm -hmm. your wallet sticking halfway out of your back pocket. Right. 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 Or if someone suddenly comes, starts coming and talking to you and you can tell there's something off about it. Well, maybe find a way to just redirect and say, Oh yeah, sorry. No, I'm on my way into the cheese shop. Mm -hmm. And then you leave, right? Like you mm -hmm. don't, you don't have to engage with people you don't want to. So anyway, that's obviously, uh, something mm -hmm. for a future self-defense podcast. Just kidding. But like, <laughs> <laughs> but like the thing with invasive species here is just the same. Like it's better if they just don't come mm -hmm. here. It's better if we don't mm -hmm. have to deal with them at all, if we don't even get the propagules. So, and this of course ties into the conservation dog stuff again, mm -hmm. but like, how do we prevent these things from ever arriving in our ecosystems? Yeah. And whether that's secondary spread or initial introduction, right? Um, 
anyway, so that's, that was the, that was the extra yeah. point I thought we, we, we probably wanted to touch on. Uh, so with regards to, to management and, you know, where the dogs come in, right. We talked about occurrence data before, mm-hmm. which requires detection of a species and detection is the big mm-hmm. term that we use so much in invasive species work. And everybody, you know, who does dog stuff is of course perking up right now. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. dogs hey, we are, know that word. yeah, like dogs are phenomenal at detecting things, mm-hmm. especially things that give off biochemical signatures and surprise surprise all forms of life give off some biochemical signature dogs can detect it in the parts per trillion or something Mm -hmm. right so there's our our big overlap (laughs) yeah no that's exactly right um i think you know obviously it's right in the name detection dogs conservation detection dogs are excellent at locating things and i think you know, when we're thinking about invasive species, the question is not necessarily, can dogs find X? Can dogs find Y? Can they, can dogs locate the scat of an invasive wild boar? Sure. Can they find, um, you know, a little tiny baby seedling of an invasive, I don't know, buckthorn? Um, sure. Absolutely. Yes, they can. And now the question is, do we have appropriate eradication tools that we can act on what the dogs have found? Do we have appropriate mitigation tools to ensure that things don't just reestablish immediately or that we can actually kill this? Like I remember I also did some volunteer work with um, buckthorn and it was nuts what we had to do to try to kill these plants once they were older. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and like a lot of these invasives, like you mentioned with tree of heaven, they can, um, grow back up from little stubs of roots. So if you're not incredibly careful with how you remove them, you could end up accidentally creating a hydra where you've pulled out the one plant (laughs) and now you have 17 brand new baby plants popping up next season where there was just one. And it's just this nightmare situation. Um, So, you know, generally, and I think this is a common thing in detection dogs in general. The question isn't, can dogs find it? Because the answer is almost always yes. Mm-hmm. The question we should be asking is, are they cost effective? Are they efficient? Do we have the tools to make the next steps? If yes, on both of those. So um, for example, like can, can dogs do shoreline searches to locate zebra mussels that are actually in the water? Mm-hmm. Yep. Great at it. In a lot of cases, however, once that we've got an established reef of zebra mussels in a given lake, that's basically just information that we can then use to manage that body of water differently. We're not necessarily going to be able to use that as a way to then eradicate those zebra mussels from that lake in most cases. Right. Right. So does, yeah, that's actually a little bit lukewarm, but I think one of the important things to note with invasive species is a lot of times by the time you're starting to see leafy spurge all over your local trail, Um, and you are starting to notice it everywhere. We're kind of in mitigation phase where the best we can do is start pulling. We can start dealing with it. Um, and conservation dogs may be able to help locate, um, leftovers or kind of the initial, um, like the boundaries of an invasive species, um, infestation, but they're not necessarily going to be our primary tool for dealing with like that point where you're like walking along the trail and you're like, there's one, there's one, there's another, there's another, there's 15 in a 10 foot radius of me. Mm -hmm. We don't need dogs at that stage 
right then. That's where like human workers can come in and eradicate or remove as many of those as they can. And then maybe we bring the dogs in a couple weeks later to try to find any of the little teeny tiny seedlings that they missed, or we're taking dogs out to the edge and we're trying to determine, okay, so how bad is this leafy spurge problem? Where does it end? How can we draw a line around this infestation and figure out what to do next? Does that answer the question or am I just muddying the waters more? No, no. I I thought that was excellent. And you brought up a really, a bunch of really good points there. I thought, and those examples again, I think I think you're doing an amazing job of bringing forth just mm-hmm. hugely illustrative, helpful examples that are <laughs> that I, I assume are going to be as <laughs> helpful for listeners as they have been to me. Um, I actually have a question about mm-hmm. examples of applications of conservation dogs that you've seen. Um, mm-hmm. Before I head up that question, I, I will a little bit of a soundbite here that I, it keeps popping mm-hmm. up into my head is like j- just to like to try to illustrate what I think you've been saying so well, like. I think the issue with conservation dogs is like they have a superpower we know mm-hmm. they have a superpower it works there's no question about that how do we use it in the best way yes. for these conservation applications i think that's always the question it's never like oh are they effective like i see that like in the titles of scientific papers and i'm like who are you trying to kid with it like of course they're <laughs> effective like they're yeah. probably one of the most powerful you know biological uh sensory instruments out there like you can't mm-hmm. anyway um so that rant aside, uh, my question for you is thinking about that, mm-hmm. that earliest stage, right? That, that, that going into the cheese shop when someone's looking at you funny or, or, or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Avoiding, avoiding the fight of trying to avoid the introduction stage, like mm-hmm. preempting the entire problem. Do you see people, you know, on like a international basis, m- meaning, preventing an invasive from even getting into a country, for example, Mm. do you see people employing conservation dogs there or is it more? Okay. Okay. So it's, so like, would there be, you know, an equivalent to like a drug detection dog in the airport being like, "Mm, you know what, you're Mm -hmm. bringing bananas into this country and you're not allowed to do that because it might bring in this invasive fungus. We just did an interview with um, Grant Blackley, who is um, a patron of the podcast and he got his start doing, um, doing basically airport stuff for biological imports that are not wow. supposed to be getting imported. So okay. yeah, they, they definitely can be used in that way. Um, island nations are good about that. Yes. Countries with well, land borders yeah. are not. Um, because, so, you know, like it's, it's so much harder to really properly do that on a land border. Um, yeah, you're right, right, right. But yeah, right. island nations tend to be good about it. Um, and then some of the other ways, like really early on that conservation dogs can be used. So like, again, going back to the zebra mussel example, that's an easy one because we can be like, all right, before you get your launch permit for your boat, dog has to sniff your boat. Yes. Relatively easy and straightforward. Great. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's um and there's a woman out of california who runs muscle dogs and like that is their whole thing she's got a team of like i don't know 8 12 15 dogs and all they do is zebra muscle mitigation work like it it's a niche um you can mm-hmm. you can totally do that the other thing that um kyoko johnson from conservation dogs hawaii has talked about and like us within canine conservationists have talked about um but i don't know if anyone has actually taken the leap to do this yet would be creating kind of a rapid response repertoire um of odors that your dog is already aware of and your dog has already trained on so that if something were to happen you could be like a rapid response team at that first stage because the problem 
one of the problems with invasive species, not just with dogs, but really in general is like, okay, so say we've got someone transporting a truckload of an insect (laughs) across the country, whatever reason, I don't know. They're on their way to some lab Mm -hmm. and the truck tips over and everything escapes. Um, this is now getting into like sci-fi horror, uh, crossover, but, um, imagine, you know, part of the problem there is then it's like, okay, we need to recognize the problem. We need to get funding. We need to assemble a team. We need to go out and we need to try to find all of these guys before they go out and they become their own established population. And there are invasive species within North America. And I'm sure this is the same for wherever you're listening, where you're like, yeah, I'm aware of the fact that in a similar ecosystem to my home base, this invasive is a problem. If I were to train my dog on this, we could then be ready to deploy and we can deal with the budget questions later quickly. And like that is something that I, I would be really interested in seeing, and I don't quite know how or when it could happen, but being able to jump on some of these these things right away I mean, that's, this is more like the pepper spray approach (laughs) where Mm -hmm. you've got something that is like, it's ready. It's a quick draw and it's going to do, going to do the job right away before we're in the stage of now we're trying to like grapple with someone who's trying to do whatever. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Trying to, trying to go with your, your, uh, your uh, metaphor that is a little bit more your territory than mine. It's, it's a, it's a very ugly metaphor, but I think at least in the preemptive part, it works well, but no, I, I, your pepper Mm spray is spot on. I just. I find stinky couches a lot more pleasant than pepper spray, but, uh, yeah. so I think the only other thing that I would want to mention in terms of conservation dog, uh, involvement, which I don't think we have at least specifically highlighted, but we've kind of talked about it a little bit is like, even if things are at their worst and this species is here mm-hmm. and it's secondary spreading and whatever, um, monitoring is huge too. Yeah. Like exactly. even if it's already in a place, even if it's already in like Lake Powell, the other thing that we want is not just the knowledge that it's there, but what's it doing there? Like mm-hmm. just having what, what scientists would call a time series of information, like keeping track of mm-hmm. how it's moving. Are the, are the populations fluctuating, looking at abundance and percentage of cover and things mm-hmm. like that of these species um, is another really important one. And another just like day-to-day grind mm-hmm. sort of data collection that, that dogs are, excellent at this yeah no and i think yeah and one other thing that i know um conservation dogs have been used for and i believe this is um primarily a working dogs for conservation gig down in um in iowa they were working on an invasive species of lespediza and there if i'm remembering correctly what they were basically working on is kind of using the dogs as a way to test their eradication eradication and mitigation measures so they were like, okay, we're going to take this oh, plot cool. of land. Um, and I, I'm, now now I'll just do this hypothetically because I'm not entirely sure if this is what they were doing. But we're going to take plot A, we're going to burn it. Plot B, we're going to spray. Plot, plot mm-hmm. C, we're going to send out an army of volunteers who are just going to go and hand pull everything. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to take the dogs out and check and see yeah. which one was most successful one month out, six months out, a year out. Um Mm-hmm. And we can use the dogs as a way to basically check our work. Um, and again, I think we've we've hinted at this, but like I think with a lot of our more established invasive species, where conservation dogs are most useful is as part of a team. Um, you you can use the dogs as a way to check the work of human teams, as a way to find the ones that they missed, 
Um, and you know, with the example of zebra mussels, like as a way to find the things that humans, again, just don't have a chance of finding, but they, in most cases with invasive species, I don't think dogs are ever going to be the only tool for a lot of these things. But honestly, I think Mm -hmm. that's kind of how most science goes. You're very rarely going to be like, aha, the one camera trap is going to like (laughs) complete my entire study. Yeah. Yeah. It's just endlessly interdisciplinary and collaborative and there's mm-hmm. no other way to do it when it comes to conservation. I totally agree. I think, yeah, yeah. I mean, do- conservation detection dogs or just dogs have slash are a superpower. Um, that does not mm-hmm. mean they don't need an Avengers, right? They need to be part yeah. of that team. Yeah. This is just like the metaphor podcast. Um, <clears throat> oh gosh, I had one. Of, oh, and one other thing that I think about a lot with conservation detection dogs and invasive species in particular is I think this is the area where I am most excited to see more civilian scientists, excited amateurs, volunteers with conservation dogs getting involved in the invasive species fight. Because mm-hmm. I think when you're working with something, if we're looking at some of the other uses for um, conservation dogs, if you're looking at monitoring um, an endangered species or ecosystems um, and much more kind of like rigorous science, mm-hmm. that is a place where I think it is really truly best to have like a professional team come in. And I'm not just saying that because I want jobs. Like I, I, I was just consulting <laughs> with someone who was talking about trying to get an amateur citizen science program up and running for a given um, uh, an amphibian. Mm-hmm. And when they were describing to me the project, I was just like, I, I really think we need to get a professional team on the ground and do at least a test season with this first before we start trying to get um, civilian scientists up and running a volunteer team up and running with this because we, there are just too many unknowns with this project right now. I cannot actually fully help you without kind of having it tested out on the ground. Invasives are in some ways similar, but in other ways different. I think there is a lot more openness to the idea of, hey, we're going to have a big weed pull day organized by the local hiking club and the friends of X National Forest are all getting together. There's going to be donuts and coffee and we're going to all go pull leafy spurge. Mm -hmm. I think that is an area where I could absolutely see more amateur conservation dog handlers being like, hey, I've trained my dog to do this can I bring my dog to this day? And we're just going to help out, you know? And I, I would love to see more of that because there are so many people who are so eager to help. And so many people whose dogs are eager to do this work who for whatever reason, aren't going to do this full time either because this field is ridiculously difficult to break into and make it make a living doing, or because Mm -hmm. they like their real job and they like the stability and they just want to go do this a couple weekends a year. I think invasives are like the place that that could happen. And I'm really excited and hopeful to see more of that in the coming years. Well said. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, okay. Is there anything else we've, we've already gone a little bit long as we tend to, um, Mm -hmm. that we need to bring up. Can we, can we talk about your most recent paper? It's okay. People are, people can pause this and come back to it. They're adults. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, I think it's, I think it's pretty, uh, quick, uh, overall, but Mm -hmm. yeah, my, my, uh, last position at the university of Montana had a major invasive species focus. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, uh, I sort of coordinated uh, and and brought together sort of a, a science Avengers around um, <laughs> technology for addressing the invasive species 
crisis, the invasion crisis, as they're calling it. And uh, we, yeah, we we had this paper um, that was just that was recently published in a really fantastic, um, far-reaching journal called Biological Reviews. And it's this it's this massive, you know, very technical paper, but it goes through all of the coolest, you know, cutting edge technologies that have been coming out and how those can be mm-hmm. integrated into a kind of coherent science policy practice approach to dealing with species invasions and hopefully, you know, keeping them from getting any worse. And so we talk about, okay, well, you know, how do you describe the environment that you're seeing things in, you know, drones and all sorts of cool stuff like that. And how do you use special kinds of math to figure out where the species are going to go next and things like that. But one of the biggest parts of that whole paper is like, how do we find these things in the first place? How do we Mm -hmm. detect and monitor these populations over time? And of course, one of the coolest examples of, of this technology for doing this sort of thing that's that's super effective and not enough people know about it is conservation detection mm-hmm. dogs, right? And so we have we have a, some some fantastic language in there about it, and I'm really hoping that that will mm-hmm. get broader recognition of conservation detection dogs in the field because I was working with scientists from all over the world developing that paper, and a lot of them had never really thought about the concept. You know, I mentioned it, and they were like, yeah. "Well, what the hell is that?" Or they said like, oh, that's cute, haha. And I was like, no, no, this is like real. Yeah. Like we could be doing this. Uh, and so hopefully, you know, in, in a journal with that kind of authority coming from the University of Cambridge and stuff like that, like we're hoping, you know, that, that yeah. will be and I like thing it that, was that name out. And I think it was also kind of snuck in there because the folks who are reading that may not be the sort of person who would choose to read the article on you know, like Dr. Niall Richards has a book called Using Detector Dogs to Monitor Aquatic Ecosystems. They clearly haven't read that book and probably aren't going to. Um, mm-hmm. Or, you know, using detection dogs to monitor uh, beaver populations or whatever. Like, they're, I, I'm not remembering the title of that paper right. But they, they clearly haven't read that paper and are not likely to yet. So can we get it in and get it out in some of these other venues, I think, is um, absolutely something we need more of for this this tool to be utilized to its fullest potential. Because I think we've got a long way to go before conservation dogs are actually reaching anywhere close to their full potential of impact mm-hmm. within this field. Yeah, I totally agree. So, yeah. Yeah, and um, that's probably a good note to end on. I want to keep talking, mm-hmm. but um, <laughs> we do need to let you go. So, um, Charles, where can people find you on the internet if they're interested in um, learning more from you? Uh, all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, my my general like professional website is vanreeseconservation.com. That has links mm-hmm. to all sorts of great podcasts like Canine Conservationists that I've been on. And it, it will hopefully soon have links to my TEDx talk, which you can find on YouTube by just Googling TED or looking up TEDx and my name. Uh, and my nature blog is mm-hmm. guloinnature.com. That's G-U-L-O-I-N-N-A-T-U-R-E.com. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and yeah, and people can find me on social media and stuff too, just by searching my name. And I look forward to chatting with folks. Yeah. Well, and thank you for coming back on the podcast. It's always a pleasure. We're going to have a couple more of these coming out soon, hopefully. Mm -hmm. So everyone will get to learn a lot more from Charles as I ask him all (laughs) of my silly questions as well. Um, And for everyone at home, thank you so much for listening. Um, We hope you learned a lot and you're feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill set. You can find show notes, donate to canine conservationists, join Patreon, buy stickers, find the links 
all of that stuff over at canineconservationists.org. We will be back in your earbuds next week. Bye.